0: Oh we're in John's gospel this morning i uh, I think Calvin did you switch your your sermon topic for tonight yeah he did he had a so if you want to uh, read that I don't know if the verse was even in there but whatever you were thinking about he might say he's not um, and I just hope it's good so uh, Calvin will be preaching tonight um, and I'm still in John i We have a bit of a chunk to read. I got to verse 24 thinking I might preach there, and then I didn't really think that was a good place to end the sermon. Then I got to verse 31 and thought, no, that's not a good place to end the sermon. Eventually got to verse 37 and 38 and thought, there, that's where the sermon needs to end. So I'll read from verse 1 through to verse 39. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews are seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil." You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be? So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. let us ask God to bless his word read and preached in our midst. O Lord, we thank you for your word. It is to us a great treasure that is not hidden, but It is revealed, and yet, O Lord, we have only been able to appreciate so little of this treasure because we still have hearts that are struggling against sin. And so we pray that we would appreciate all of the treasures of the wisdom of knowledge that comes through Christ our Lord in these words. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if any of you have ever had somebody who has uh, sought to actually kill you, that your life has been in jeopardy by someone seeking to kill you. I made this point in my sermon earlier, and actually there was a a lady who came up to me after and told me a very moving story about the time that her life was in jeopardy, and uh, it happened to have taken place in the Philippines, which was... uh, quite something. Uh, and she told me this story and it was quite moving. So I, I'm i not suggesting that it is unlikely that anyone here would say, no, I don't know this reality. It is indeed possible to know what it is to have your life in danger. Uh, it is also the case that many of us maybe don't know the reality of what it is like to have our life in danger. But have you ever been in a situation where somebody is at least trying to harm you, not just physically harm you, but maybe emotionally harm you, psychologically harm you, harm you in terms of your reputation, harm you in a sense where it can do great damage to your life. The truth of the matter is, most of us don't even like it when somebody dislikes us. It can cause us some emotional anxiety and grief just knowing that somebody doesn't like us. They might not even attempt to harm us, but just knowing they don't like us causes us some grief. In the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, His life didn't spiral out of control as it were sort of a few days before Golgotha. He lived in a life of constant, shall we say, constant obedience to God, which actually meant he left the glories of a safe life and was always under the gun, as it were. He was always in a passion. We speak of his life of suffering not simply in the last week, but actually his whole life was a life of suffering. And his whole life was a life of suffering insofar as we're merely one-third of the way through the Gospel of John and people are seeking to kill him. Now, when somebody's trying to kill you, how does that affect your ability to bless others? How does it affect your ability when you're under great emotional pressure and anxiety to be a blessing to others? Is it not true that when we are under such a state of distress that we are actually of very little use to anybody else? We are consumed with our life, with our worries, with our cares, and we're not much good to anybody else. The Lord Jesus Christ ministered under circumstances where He was constantly doing good to people though His life was being sought, though He was being persecuted. And that puts a glory and luster upon all that He does because He didn't live a life whereby life was easy for Him. Now, as you see the context, it's given to us in verse 2 because the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. And this was a feast that lasted eight days. There were seven days, and then on the eighth day, there was a feast. And this feast was quite a popular feast that took place in Jerusalem, where Jewish people would go to Jerusalem. They would uh, have these little booths, little tents, that they would uh, stay in during the eight days. And as they stayed there, (coughs) pardon me, as they stayed there, there would be a celebration of what God had done for them in the past, as well as a looking forward to what God would do for them in the future. They would have these tents and they would go to the temple, and the priests, during the course of the seven days, would take sort of like a golden vase and from the pool of Siloam take this golden vase up to the temple and they would pour water out from the temple and that would maybe remind you of Ezekiel chapter 47 where the uh, illustration of the temple is really an illustration of a temple where uh, streams of living water are flowing out from the temple. And they would sing psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, the Psalms of Ascent, where they would chant them out, they would sing them, and it was really a, a time where they were asking God to bring salvation. And it was a place where lots of pilgrims would come to worship God. So that's the sort of religious context as well. You've got the immediate context of Christ's life being under pressure, but you also have the religious context of lots of people in Jerusalem. But then you also have Christ's brothers. And Christ's brothers, they are a a nefarious group of people, I think. Um, You would think, having lived with Jesus for that period of time, by now they would have understood who He is. They would have embraced who He is. They would have loved who He is and and been true disciples. But the truth of the matter is, they are extremely worldly people. And they are worldly people because... They've seen the miracles that Jesus does and they're asking Him to come up to Jerusalem and they're basically egging Him on, saying, listen, you can perform these miracles, but nobody does in private these things. They should do them in public. So notice what they say in verse 4. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Imagine trying to give advice to Christ on how He should conduct His ministry. That's what they're doing. Notice they say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. The idea is they're going to march up to Jerusalem with Jesus. They're going to be identified with the one who performs all of these miracles. And they are going to receive some of the glory that naturally comes to Jesus. It's sort of like, yes, uh, we're with Him. And whenever Jesus is given a request by someone in the Gospel of John, He almost, I think exclusively, never answers it on their terms ever. Mary says, do something. He says, my time has not yet come. Why do you involve me? And then he does something on his own terms. Here, they say, come up to Jerusalem and show yourself. He doesn't actually follow them at that point. And so what you find is that John says in verse 5, for not even his brothers. I love that. Not even. It's one thing to say the Jews did not believe in him, but he says, not even his brothers Believed in Him. And the reason that He doesn't uh, acquiesce to their demands is because He's not going to do things on the terms of worldly people who are only interested in a theology of glory. That's really the issue. They are theologians of glory. And Christians need to be theologians of the cross before they are theologians of glory. This was a distinction Luther made. So he says, My time has not yet come. And he draws home a point, drives home a point that really gets to the heart of the problem of these brothers and indeed many people who claim to follow Christ. You will know that there are liberal churches. And liberal churches, they like Jesus still, by and large, to some extent, at least in terms of saying who they like. They don't like Paul. Paul, you know, he was a man of his time. Uh, You see his letters, clearly a misogynistic uh, Jewish man who was... You know, so inundated by the pressures of the society in which he lived, caused him to write these things that debarred women from office and so on and so forth. But we love Jesus. But what they do with Jesus is they make Jesus into someone you would never want to kill. And the Jesus we find in the scriptures is a Jesus that actually divides opinion sharply and strongly, even amongst religious people. So, for example, you will see when they dispute about who Jesus is, they say, he's a good man. But others say, no, he's leading people astray. He's either a good man or he's a false teacher. But because of the fear of the Jews, nobody spoke openly about him. So what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't go up with his brothers to show himself in all of his glory with miracles on their terms. He waits and goes up on His terms. And you see that in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, so this feast is seven days plus another, the eighth day where they have a feast. In the middle of the feast, after a few days, Jesus goes up and begins teaching. And this is how you had to do things in the olden days. My my father was visiting with my mother, a quick stopover, and my dad was bringing up the fact that Uh, Back in London, when he was a young man in London, people would go to London and you'd be able to go to a specific place in London and stand upon like a sort of uh, podium, as it were, and just start talking about things, anything. That's what people did. And you could go and talk about how bad your football team was. And you'd get up on the podium and you'd start giving a long dispute and people were able to argue back and that's what happened. Or you'd get up and speak about the government or about this world issue or about religious things. And so Christian preachers and others would go to London and get up and speak. Well, Jesus is in a highly charged religious context where there's fervor, where there's people, and He begins to speak. And He speaks in such a way that people are marveling because they don't understand where he has received his learning. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? People who spoke publicly at that time, if they were rabbis, they would... uh, often conduct their speeches by always citing the rabbis from where they got their information. So they would say, as Rabbi George, probably not George, but as Rabbi George has said. And then they would list all of these things. And so they're thinking, where has he received this teaching? And we often wonder those things about various people. I Uh, I had an interesting uh, week, actually. I I always do, really. I just think it's important to live interesting weeks, Uh, one week at a time. And uh, I think my daughter, it was my daughter, yes, she's here, she can confirm the story. Uh, She gets into the car and uh, picked her up from school, and uh, she has this South African English teacher. Now, South African teachers, they're tough. We got a few even sitting here this morning. You don't mess with South African teachers. Um, And this South African teacher, well, uh, she also had my other uh, child, and he wrote an essay. Uh, And he got a little bit of help from someone in the family uh, on his essay. Uh, So much help, I think, that uh, he got into the car and said, Dad, what does albeit mean? (laughs) What do you mean, what does albeit mean? Well, he'd evidently written in his essay something where the word albeit arose and the teacher, South African, Miss Condos, asked him, uh, Josh, this is far beyond your ability. Now, I'm going to protest for a moment here because I know some of you probably have helped your kids with artwork, you know, and those little projects and those concoctions that you build. And you see some kids come walking to school with these huge things. And I'm like, there's no way you did that. So why does your mom or dad get to help with all these things, but I can't throw albeit into a sentence? So then Katie gets in the car and her teacher said, listen... I think this is how it went. I know that your parents... I don't know why she threw made it plural. I wanted the glory. I know that your parents have some skills in writing. But you need to make sure this is your own work. Uh, and I, wanted, I still have to give her a bottle of wine. I was going to write on the wine. Uh, this is a, a nice uh, bottle of red, albeit not expensive. Um, <laughs> but the question that she's asking is, Josh, uh, where did you get this teaching? Now, if he had any brains, the young man would have said, uh, this teaching is not my own. It is from him who sent me. Uh, (laughs) But the point is, It is a bit alarming when you see somebody and you go, how could they have learned this? Jesus didn't go to any of the schools of the rabbis, Hillel. uh, This doesn't make any sense to us. When actually, Jesus went to the school of His Father, morning by morning, He awakens me. He awakens me as one who is to be taught. Or the previous servant song in chapter 49, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. You see, the weapon that Christ has been given from His Father is the weapon of His mouth. And he's been instructed from above so that he can say, I only speak the words the Father has given me. Yes, you know what? This teaching isn't my own. This teaching is from my Father and only from my Father. And if you knew the Father, you would embrace this teaching. Now, as that unfolds, he basically castigates them for not believing and understanding because they... Uh, don't actually believe. And this is something important about the Christian message. You see this in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me, sent him, is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Now, as he speaks about that, and as he says, this is where my teaching comes from you have to understand that to actually believe in Jesus Christ must first be a matter of faith that then leads to embracing His teaching. It is always a moral issue as much as an intellectual issue. It's not merely intellectual. Augustine has this quote, it's it's well known, but he says, understanding is the reward of faith. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you will not understand anything that Jesus says. So Augustine says, therefore, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe in order that you may understand. And Anselm had that Latin phrase, credo ut intelligem, I believe in order that I may understand. They do not believe in the Son of God, therefore they do not understand the Son of God. So it is not an intellectual issue. It is always a moral issue as much as an intellectual issue. And then he reminds them in verse 18 or verse 19 towards the end, why do you seek to kill me? Now they ridicule this in verse 20. They say, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now, that's a good question. You've been sitting here for a few months going through the Gospel of John. Is Jesus just making things up? Does He have any grounds upon which to say to them, why are you seeking to kill Me? Is He just maybe caught up in a bit of paranoia? Or is there legitimate grounds upon which Jesus can say, why are you seeking to kill Me? Where would Jesus get this idea from? Where? Now, hopefully, one or two of us are going back to chapter 5 where He heals the man who is an invalid for 38 years and is able to uh, give him the ability to walk where he never had that ability. And if you go back to chapter 5, he did it on the Sabbath. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to what? Kill him. The last time he was in Jerusalem, he performs a miracle and they are trying to kill him. And they're seeking to kill Him because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father. They were seeking to kill Him not only because of what He did, but because of who He claimed to be. So He has grounds for asking them why they're seeking to kill Him. But then those who are looking on, you see this in verse 25, says, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And yet, if they're seeking to kill Him, why is He speaking openly? And they say nothing to Him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And I wonder, if, while they're seeking to kill Him, there isn't something within their soul, something that isn't perhaps biting away at their conscience that, you know what, maybe He really is the Messiah. So while they're seeking to kill Him, they're not willing to do it openly, but they're going to lengths behind the scenes to seek Him arrested so that He may be killed But part of me wonders if they didn't actually think, what if he really is the Messiah? Now, as it unfolds, they say, well, we know where this man comes from. But when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And there's this idea, it's not really rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's more a popular idea at the time that the Messiah would just arrive onto the scene that they wouldn't know that he was born of joseph a carpenter of mary that he grew up in nazareth and so on that he would just emerge onto the scene and bring liberation to the people of god and they say well that's what the messiah is going to do so he can't be the messiah but they are confused because you see in verse 31 they say when christ appears will he do more signs than this man has done so the whole point is there's so much confusion Notice how many question marks there are. I think if you were to count in the original, though they don't have that, but if you were to count the questions, there would be 19 questions that are asked just in this chapter. There's confusion and people don't understand. But Jesus, with a bit of Joannine irony, says, you know me and you know where I come from, but they actually don't. Because He illustrates, I have not come of My own accord. He who sent Me is true, and Him you do not know. For I know Him, for I come from Him. His origin is actually far beyond Nazareth. It's far beyond the carpenter's shop, so to speak. His origin is heaven. And so they want to arrest Him, but no one lays a hand on Him. Now as it continues to unfold, you'll notice that Jesus is in full control of the situation because when they say to one another in verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? And this is the irony of John is that actually Jesus does intend to go to the Greeks in a certain sense. Because in Matthew 28, He's going to go into all the world, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. But they don't really understand what He's saying. There's a lot of times... Wicked people say true things and they don't know it. They say, for example, He's dying on the cross. This man has saved others, but He cannot save Himself. Well, that's the Gospel. They're uttering the truth of the Gospel. And here, He's going to go to the Greeks. Yes, He will go to the Greeks. He'll go all over the world because, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. But what does He mean? You will seek Me and you will not find Me or where I am you cannot come? that He will ascend to the Father, but they will not ascend with Him. Now this brings us to what I think is the climax of the whole event. Because Jesus is waiting. He's teaching. Remember, the priests are pouring water out from the temple. And it's illustrating the promise of God's future blessing. And when water is poured out, it is symbolic of the promise of the Spirit that is going to be poured out. And so Jesus does something quite unique. He stands up, and rabbis typically sat down to teach. He stands up, and we're told by the Old Testament scriptures that he will not cry out, that when the Messiah comes, he will not cry out, and yet there are a few occasions where Jesus cries out. And we're told here, he cries out. "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink." You see, he's not just walking in the streets and just says this randomly. He's in a context where people are yearning for the spiritual water from heaven. Where everything that they've come to Jerusalem for is to receive this water. So when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he doesn't then talk about the bread of life. He speaks about the realities that they're thinking about. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What is he saying? He's basically saying the fulfillment and the promise of all that you're yearning for is in your very midst. And it's quite remarkable because this is the most inclusive offer in one sense and yet the most exclusive offer in another. Notice those words, if anyone, anyone here, if anyone here thirsts, let him come and drink. Or verse 38, whoever believes. It's, it's inclusive of anyone. It's like Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. But it's actually, when you look at it more closely, the most exclusive offer because He doesn't just say anyone and everyone. He says anyone who thirsts. You have to thirst. And he uses this rich, pregnant idea of thirsting to a people who probably would have been thirsting. And if you actually think about what drives us as human beings the most in this world to have satisfied every single day, it's thirst. If you were to be told you can give up food or sex or drink for the next week, what would be the last thing that you could give up? It would have to be drink. You would need to drink water. You could live for a week without eating. It wouldn't be fun. It would be painful. But if you were to go seven days without water and you look at what it's like to be dehydrated, it's one of the most awful ways a person can die. And that intense thirst, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, where you would do anything for a drink of water. That happens to me most nights, by the way. I stagger to the bathroom, the sink, not the toilet. And I'm so parched and I just need some water because I can't sleep because my mouth is all dried. I hate that feeling. And then you drink water or maybe you've had a long workout and exercise and all you want is water. Water. Now, the problem with us as human beings is that we know so powerfully the realities of our bodily needs. And the struggle as Christians is trying to bring our spiritual needs into greater focus and not so much our bodily needs, though they are obviously important. Because the way of the world is what? It is seeking to relieve all of those desires, to satisfy all of those desires that we have according to our body, to eat To drink. To be merry. To do all of those things the world says are important for your body. And the Christian has to rise beyond that and say, you know what? My soul needs to drink. And it's hard, isn't it? You read a psalm like Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The question before you today is whether you in any way understand what it is to have your soul parched to the degree that you know it needs to be filled by the living waters that come from Christ and where you are satisfied by those living waters. And my fear for you and my fear for myself is that we get by in the Christian life. We get by with just enough so that our conscience is appeased that we are Christians, that we're not hypocrites, because we know there are hypocrites and we know there are people who are unbelievers in the church and we don't want to be like those people. So we do enough so that we can say, yes, I know I'm a Christian and you get by. Maybe you're a parent or maybe you're a child and you know this type of child you have. What is this type of child? This type of child is the one that drives you nuts because what did they do when they go through school? They get by. They pass their course. And you get mad because you're like, you're capable of so much more and it drives you nuts. Maybe some of you don't know that, right? Your kids all got straight A's. Well done, good and faithful servant. But It's a reality for a lot of us. It's maybe not even academics. It could be sports. It could be other things. And you see, they're just getting by and it drives you nuts. But what about you in the Christian life just getting by with regards to your soul? Does that drive you nuts? Do you get upset about that? Do you have debates at home with yourself saying, you're just getting by? No. You'd rather castigate your child or your spouse or someone else for just getting by rather than taking a long look at your life saying, I am not thirsting the way I need to thirst. And I'm not being filled in the way that Christ has promised. Christ did not stand up in the temple and say, I'm going to let you just get by. To just do enough. He says, if anyone thirsts, what? Let him come to Me and drink. And whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Spiritual lukewarmness is a plague that affects us naturally as Christians. And Christ hasn't promised to give you a lukewarm life. He has promised to give you a life whereby out of you, guess what? the temple that he stood in where those priests would pour out water from the temple to symbolize God's blessing, he has said that temple is now you. You are God's temple. And He is filling you to such a degree that out of your life and soul should flow streams of living water. That is, you should have a holy hope of things to come. That is, you should be faithful. You should be joyful. You should be blessed. You should be loving. You should be kind. You should have the fruit of the Spirit so that everyone knows and you know that you pant for God daily and is that fundamentally a different message than last week that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no life in you he's saying the same thing that when you come to Christ it's not enough to have a sip that when you come to Christ you drink and you drink and you drink and out of your life should flow streams not drops, streams of living water don't be content with merely getting by ask for that thirst that you all have to be filled by the one who alone can fill it let's pray Oh Lord we thank you for your word and ask that we will be given water to drink and that water will not be a mere sip but rather a filling that leads to an overflowing of the Spirit in our lives. And, O oh Lord, who here can say we have attained to that consistency in our Christian living? But we pray that it may be so. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Have the offering and then we'll sing our final hymn.